And at the time of his baptism, he was recognized by that particular denomination as being a Christian. But he had to do some other things if he was going to be a Baptist. And so he assented to those things. And, of course, uh, we talked about uh, he, uh, I think, at 11 years old, he had his last schooling. And he could read a little and he could write a little. But he had to have things explained to him and read to him. And, and uh, you know, like uh, all people are, someone tells you something, it doesn't stick with you quite as well if you read it and they're able to go back and read it again. So he came to this understanding that he didn't go along with these articles of faith. <clears throat> and so uh, <clears throat> later on he decided that uh, he wanted to uh, uh, consider himself about going into the uh, into evangelism, he wanted to be a preacher. So I think it was 1759 or 1789, rather. He uh, he thought about it. He listened to uh, the Baptist preaching going on in that area. And again, we kind of see it pockets of different denominations. And of course, we understand why that happened. You had the Church of England that came over. Uh, across the sea to the colonies. The Revolutionary War took place. Uh, the established church, which is the Church of England, uh, no longer became a state-sponsored organization. Uh, at that time, England was taxing the people to help support the clergy of the Church of England. And so when the uh, Revolutionary War finally stopped, and obviously America gained its independence, no more pay for the clergy. So ultimately what happened, they went back to England. So this created a vacuum. People felt as though now they were, uh, uh, they didn't have enough preachers. They didn't quite understand the teaching of the Bible because they'd been told these other things from these various denominations, uh, the Catholic Church, the Church of England, uh, or the Anglican Church. Uh, it goes by several different names. And so they felt like they had to have a clergy system before they could be baptized before they could take uh, the Lord's Supper and different things like that. So it created this vacuum <clears throat> where they didn't have these clergy members. And so in uh, North Carolina and Virginia, you see the Methodists come in uh, in full force because they'd already uh, been sent across uh, the sea, across the ocean to the colonists, and they were working among the colonists, but they were having a difficult time because of the Church of England. Well, when they left, they just came in and took their places. Well, we see up in New England, same thing happened. They left. Now you have the Baptist denomination coming in and taking their places. Now, here's what we have to understand about all these different denominations. When we look at the Reformation movement of which we studied, reforming the Catholic Church, did Martin Luther and, and all those people, did they go far enough? No, they didn't go far enough. They didn't go back to the Bible, but they got the ball rolling. They've got people interested in saying, hey, let's go back and see what the Bible says. Let's stop listening to the Pope or the priest or whatever. We see the emergence of the uh, uh, Church of England because Henry VIII fell out with the Pope, and so he established his own state religion. And the same thing happened. People began to want to reform that. John Wesley wanted to reform the Church of England. He never he never left the Church of England. He was never a Methodist or a Wesleyan. He was always uh, a bishop in the 
Church of England. And so these men, even members of these denominations, saw some things that were wrong. They wanted to change that. Let's go back to the Bible. Did they do enough? No, they didn't do enough. But should we appreciate the efforts that they made to try to go back to the Bible? Sure, we ought to appreciate it. That doesn't mean we endorse or support their denominational doctrine, but we ought to appreciate their movement to get these things moving and going. So, uh, uh, Smith, at one point, he decided that he wanted to be a preacher. He had been listening to the Baptists. He was not impressed with their abilities. In fact, he said they have a lack of ability. They didn't really know what they were talking about because what were they studying? They weren't necessarily studying the Bible. They were some. They were more concerned with their articles of faith. What's the Baptist doctrine on this? Where do we stand on this? Instead of going back to the Bible. So what Smith decided to do was he said, I'm going to be a preacher. And uh, he said, if I can't make out better than that, I won't try again. I'm going to go back to the Bible. And what normally happens when someone says, okay, I'm going to go see what the Bible says about it. I'm not so sure about this. Maybe they're coming out of some kind of a denomination. They don't even realize it's a denomination. But they begin reading the Bible and they begin to see some things. Well, someone with an open mind who is just strictly searching for truth is going to notice some differences, aren't they? The uh, the Reformation fathers began to notice some differences. When Martin Luther was actually able to get his hands on a Bible, when he was in college... At university, he saw some major differences, didn't he? When these other people began to go back and search the Bible, and I think we overlooked that a little bit, and we've made this point. Are there any shortage of Bibles in our country? I don't know how many we got in this room alone. I mean, they're all in the pews, right? Uh, I've got three up here with me right now. And so, but what's the difference in not having access to it but having access to it and not delving into it. You kind of get the same result, don't you? And so when people finally come around and they say, well, listen, let's go back to see what the Bible says about this because things have been changing and, and that's what happens. Denominations evolve, don't they? We see it in the news all the time. They'll have a conference somewhere, a particular denomination decides, are we going to accept homosexuality? Are we going to allow... Are we going to embrace that for members and say it's okay? Are we going to allow the clergy system to to uh, be homosexuals or not? Are we going to let uh, our women be preachers? Are we going to use uh, the instrument? What are we going to do? See, it's always evolving, isn't it? And so over time people say, well, we started here in X amount of years or periods of time. Now we're way over here. So let's go back and see what the Bible says. And so Elias Smith began to study the Bible. And uh, he made a statement. He said that he was determined that he would never speak without first having evidence of a call from God. And second, doing all he could to adequately prepare himself for the gospel ministry. Now let's talk a little bit about this call. I think sometimes we we kind of shy away from uh, statements 
that are absolutely scriptural because they've been misused by, in the denominational world. Okay? We don't talk a whole lot about the elect. Not that we don't believe there's an elect, but it has been misused and misrepresented, right? When, some, when you hear someone speak about the elect, almost without doubt, we, we hear it in a denominational sense. John Calvin, through the Reformation movement, came up with that, right? He didn't start it, but he propagated it probably better than anyone. And so we, we tend to want to shy away from that. Well, here's the truth about the elect, right? There, Peter said, make your calling and election sure. So there is the elect. We have to understand the circumstances of the elect. Who did God elect to be saved? All who are in Christ, right? If you want to be saved, get into Christ. And that's the short answer for the elect, right? But what about this calling? I remember one time I was asked, I was at a, a congregation up in uh, uh, Indiana, and uh, in the Bible class, a lady raised her hand, and she wasn't a member of the church. I didn't have any idea who she was. She was married to a member, and she asked me when I received my calling. Well, we don't talk about receiving our calling a whole lot, do we? Because that's kind of been misused, misrepresented, right? Well, I said, I've been called the same way everybody's been called. And we go over to 2 Thessalonians 2.14, we learn that we are called through the gospel. So when Elias Smith is talking about, he's not going to preach unless he first knows that he's been called by God. Now, I don't think he understood that exactly, the way Paul meant it. Okay, remember though, he's coming out of darkness, isn't he? He's coming out of uh, a religion, and then he goes into the Baptist religion, and he's coming out, he's growing. And so he's not really understanding that at this time. But we are all called by the gospel. It's through the gospel we're called to God, and that message is sent out to the world, right? And it's our duty to send that message out to the world through the Great Commission. Anyway, uh, in the fall of 1801, Eli Smith did become a Baptist preacher. He did begin to preach what he thought was the gospel. He moved to Salisbury, New Hampshire, and he began to have some second thoughts concerning this Baptist doctrine. Now remember, he had already said, I don't go along with this abominable doctrine of uh, the elect. Right? I'm not going to go along with that. I don't read that in the Bible. So as he preaches... And remember what he said. He said, first, I need to know I'm called. Second, I need to do all I can to prepare myself. And so how do we go about preparing ourselves if we're going to teach or preach the gospel? We have to study the Word. So through the process, he begins noticing some things. And so he begins to second-guess himself. He begins to second-guess uh, uh, the Baptist doctrine, particularly those Calvinistic leanings that uh, make up the uh, the Baptist denomination. So, after having made that uh, assurance to himself, I'm not going to preach anything unless I do enough study to prepare myself. He began to question different people within this Baptist organization. And, uh, uh, of course, what does that lead to? He's in this... Uh, uh, organization in New Hampshire of, of this of these Baptists, and he begins to question them. He begins to make statements, and so he falls out with them, right? 
Now he's got a bad reputation as a problem, as a troublemaker. When uh, Elijah went to Ahab, what was it Ahab asked him? Are you the one who's been troubling Israel? Well, who had been troubling Israel? Was it Elijah? It was Ahab, wasn't it? Ahab was the murderer. Ahab was godless. It wasn't Elijah, the prophet of God, who was doing the things God asked him to do. What about in Paul's day? What did they say about Paul? said, he's come here and he's stirred up strife and trouble. Talked about uh, the different people who he uh, dealt with and worked with. Well, they've turned this world upside down. Well, who really was causing the problem? The Jewish leaders, the Roman government. The Christian wasn't causing the problem. The Christian was simply doing what God asked uh, them to do. And so, Elias Smith falls out of favor. Now, he's the troublemaker. And uh, now, here's normally what happens. As with any false teaching, the adherent, when they begin to see an issue, they will almost always go from one extreme to the other. So what was Elias Smith's main problem? This idea of only a few people God chose to be saved. What's the other extreme to that? <clears throat> Universalism. Everybody is going to be saved. doesn't make any difference who they are, what they are, what they believe, how they live, what kind of things they support. And so Elias Smith starts going into universalism. Well, that's kind of a problem, isn't it? He's looking at God and saying, well, He's a God of love. He's a God of mercy. How could a God of love and a God of mercy allow anyone to be punished eternally in hell? So he moves over. He makes the swing. And uh, so that's an issue. But what was his habit? Remember what he said. I've got to know I'm called and I've got to prepare myself. So through his study of the Scripture, he sees that can't be right. Now, he, he's, he's trending toward that. He has a tendency toward that. But he recognizes through the Bible that can't be supported. So he writes himself. He comes back to, to the center. He's not supporting this idea of only a few elect. And he's certainly not going to support universalism. So he writes himself and he comes back to the center. And that's what God expects, right? Don't go to the left. Don't go to the right. We've, we've talked about this a lot. Don't be liberal. Don't be conservative, right? When we say conservative, I understand what we mean. I think what we mean is faithful, right? Conservative would be really anti. Uh, liberal would be uh, whatever goes, goes, right? And so we want to be neither the right or the left. Now, you know, we may describe ourselves, are we a, a conservative or a liberal congregation? Well, we'd be a conservative congregation. I understand what we're getting at. But what we are is faithful. We're, we're not going to loose where God is not loosed and we're not going to bind where God is not bound. And so Elias Smith writes himself. He goes back to the middle where he ought to be. And... Later on, uh, he wrote this. He said, When in my 24th year, 
I believed there would be a people bearing a name different from all the denominations then in this country. But what would they be called? I then could not tell in the spring of 1802, having rejected the doctrine of Calvin and universalism, to search the Scriptures to find truth, I found the name which followers of Christ ought to wear, which was Christians, Acts 11:26. My mind being fixed upon this as the right name to the exclusion of all the popular names in the world in the month of May at a man's house in Epping, New Hampshire, by the name of Lawrence, where I held a meeting and spoke upon the text, Acts 11:26. I ventured for the first time softly to tell the people, that the name Christian was enough for the followers of Christ without addition of the words Baptist, Methodist, etc. And so, how was he able to come to that understanding? Well, he read it. Read it in the Bible, right? And he made a statement before that. He said that a person is not able to study the Bible extensively, intelligently, and independently without coming to some definite convictions about the truth. That is a huge statement, brethren. If we study intelligently, independently, and we exhaust the Scripture, are we going to have some pretty definite opinions or belief systems on baptism? If we study extensively, independently, and intelligently, are we going to have some pretty definite convictions on what we call ourselves, the way we worship? Well, sure, everybody's going to, right? If you study something extensively... Now, what if you study uh, a denominational doctrine extensively? What are you going to have some convictions on? And you're studying that material. Well, you're going to have some convictions on what that material says, right? And so, that's what we have. We have people who maybe not extensively uh, study... A, uh, a creed or articles of faith, but what they are adhering to is what they're being told without studying extensively and independently, right? We need to be able to take our minds with which God has blessed us and reason through the Scripture. Can we understand the Scripture alike? We're not talking about opinion, right? We're not talking about an expediency. We're talking about doctrine. Can we understand this Correctly, Well, Paul said he taught the same thing in every church. He said, told the Ephesians, I'm, when, when you read what I've written, you'll understand the mystery, right? So it's going to be unveiled. So can we understand the same way when it comes to doctrine? Well, sure we can. God had the Bible penned in such a way that our minds can comprehend it. It's written in ways that that we will be able to read it and understand it, right? Not not written above our intelligence level at all. We don't have to have graduate degrees to be able to read the Bible and understand it. Uh, I don't remember years ago, uh, I read that the King James Bible's written on a ninth grade level or something. The New King James written even below that. And so we have the ability to read and understand we just have to do it. And we see Elias Smith doing that. Any comments, questions? Brother Joe. Are you talking about me?
Well, I, I think so. And I think one thing people do, and I've been guilty of this. Man, that's a big volume, isn't it? In fact, there's 66 books bound up in this. 27 in the New Testament alone, right? What's that leave? 39 in the Old Testament? That's a lot of study, isn't it? That's a lot of study. But are we able to read this Bible? You know, you can read the Bible, including the Old Testament, in less than a year if you wanted to, right? How many people have uh, ever read a novel? They're about that big, right? They're about that big, huh? In a week, right? Because you get interested in it, right? You just can't put it down. Well, if you study the book of Judges, you get interested in it, and it's hard to put it down. You study the, the book of Ruth. We're studying the book of Ruth on Thursday mornings. Boy, you got a love story. you got action. you got all kinds of stuff happening, right? Hard to put it down if you, if you get interested in it, right? You get over and you begin to study the, uh, the, the gospel accounts of Christ's life, and that's, you, you know, how, how, how can you study that without wanting to find out what... Now, imagine someone who's never read that. They're, they're, they're starving for it. They're starving for it. That's one of the issues, I think, in our nation. We're not starving for it. You know, we feel like that, that we, we need to go on a diet from it, right? And uh, I go overseas and to places where the Bible is not readily available. And people love it. They can't wait to get their hands on it. And they'll just go through it, go through it, go through it, go through it. They want to read that New Testament. And, uh, you know, we need to be studying the New Testament. We need to study the Old Testament. Because it, it reveals some stuff to us that we look forward to reading about in the New Testament. But there are 27 letters in the uh, New Testament. And... They're fairly short. They're not very long, really. And so we can read that and understand it. And I think maybe that's the problem. We look at a huge book and we say, oh, you know, that's like reading the dictionary. You know, who's going to open up the dictionary? You can't make your way through that. Who's going to just open up an encyclopedia and start reading every page? Well, it's a little different once we delve into it. So I think, Brother Joe, you're right. We we tend to want things quick and easy. I think we live in, in kind of a microwave Culture, you get it now, you know, it's hot and it's ready right now. You know, it's convenient. You get done, you throw it away. We live in a disposable country, right? How many of us wash our dishes by hand now? I don't. You know, some people do. I think Cameron said she does. That's what happens when you move away from home, though, isn't it? You know, some people do that. But what I'm saying, there's nothing wrong with that. I like convenience. But sometimes we just have to do it the old-fashioned way, right? We have to dig into it. We have to read it. And we have to try to understand it. How many of us have gone through college or, or high school or whatever the case may be, some kind of a, uh, a class we've taken or a trade and been given a lot of material and you had to know that material to pass a test to get your certificate or your diploma? We blew right through that, didn't we? but it meant something to us. And so I think maybe that's the issue in our nation is it doesn't mean as much to us as it used to. The work in the United States is much harder than the work outside the United States if you go to a third world country. 
The living conditions are harder there, but the work is easier. It's, it's nice to live in the United States, and I don't want to live anywhere else. But the work here is much harder, and we know that as members of the Lord's Church because we're all bound by the, the Great Commission. At any rate, I think that's correct, brother. Uh, we have a tendency to, to want it to be condensed, right? We want the cliff notes. It's hard to get the cliff notes on everything, right? And so uh, that's the way it goes. Any other comments? Questions? Well, as Elias Smith continued doing what uh, he was doing and seeing some problems, at this same meeting where he spoke out against using man-made names, he began to talk about the uh, catechism, the catechism, articles of faith, the creed. That's kind of what those things are. And he said that uh, the catechism was an invention of men. So what happens when you begin to speak out against what everybody favors? Dissension. People begin to uh, oppose him. But who primarily would you think opposed him? Wasn't the people. was the clergy. Right? Why would the clergy oppose him? Well, they had a system of their own invention, didn't they? It was just like the Church of England. That's how they made their money. And now, Elias Smith's coming in here rocking the boat. And so, what are they going to do? But we've seen that in every phase we have been studying. We started with uh, the falling away of the church, right? People began to amend the practices of the New Testament church to fit what they liked and what they wanted. And a lot of it had to do with money. The Catholic church arose out of the the ashes of the, the New Testament church, it was destroyed in a lot of ways, in a lot of places. The church was never destroyed, but it was harmed greatly in a lot of areas. So out of that harm came the Catholic church. It was money, money, money. You're buying indulgences. You're selling indulgences. You can do what you want to. People began to speak out against it. They opposed them. And during that Reformation movement, they killed them. Right? So we, we go from the uh, uh, Catholic system the Reformation movement into the Church of England, they want to reform that. Well, people speak out against them. It wasn't as brutal during that system, but it was still the same uh, mindset. And then we have this Protestant movement. We're going to protest. We're protesting the church. We're protesting anything that makes us do what they say to do according to their rules, right? We want to go back to the to the Bible. And so... Even in this Protestant movement, we have these denominations where people say, hey, we just want to go back to the Bible. And when someone stands up and says, well, let's look at the Bible. Now we have opposition again. I think people get comfortable with something, and that kind of tends to go toward our nature. If it's comfortable, we kind of want to stick with it, right? And so you've got this clergy and this denomination they're kicking up a dust because Elias Smith says, no, wait a minute, these catechisms, these articles of faith, these uh, uh, councils, all these things where we're making decisions where God already made a decision, we need to get away from that. Now, wait a minute, you're cutting in on my lifestyle. Let's not get too hasty. And that's the opposition that Elias Smith faced. So... Uh, 
he began to go out on his own. He rented a place in 1802 and he began to preach. And he began to talk about principles that he read in the Bible. So eventually, uh, Smith moved to, uh, he and his family to Portsmouth, Portsmouth, Connecticut, uh, to preach at a new congregation. They had called and asked for him to come over because in 1802 he began to meet regularly on Sunday with a small group of folks that began to listen to what he was saying. And they wanted to go back to the Bible. And so uh, uh, eventually, as seems Satan often works, not that these people were doing what the Bible said exactly at that time, they were moving in that direction. And so uh, things happen to try to... Uh, Satan works in this world, not miraculously, but through ways that discourage those who are searching for the truth. Their building burned down. And they had five members. Wouldn't it have been easy for those five members to say, this is not worth it. Let's just go back to what's comfortable. And uh, this is hard work. And let's just do what we've always done. That would be easy to do that, wouldn't it? Well, that's not what they did. They maintained. And so they stuck it out and they began to talk about organizing uh, themselves into a church. They began to meet in a school building and they wanted to be called Christian. We're not going to use any sectarian names. We want to be called Christians. And that's what we're going to teach and preach and that's how we're going to live. So three months after their building burned in, in March of 1803, they had ten members. By April, they had 22 members. And uh, at that time, guess what name they decided upon? They decided they were going to be called the Church of Christ. As far as I know, that's the first time in this restoration movement that someone decided to be called that. And Elias Smith... Baptist preacher or ex-Baptist preacher, he decided to do that. A year later, they had 50 members. Or, excuse me, 150 members. You see, they started with five. A year later, they've got 150. A year and a half later, 150. They buy a building, or they build a building. They buy some land, build a building. And they began to try to go back or to maintain going back to the uh, uh, New Testament church. Now, in 1803... Smith met Abner Jones. And when we study the restoration, those two men are inseparable. They did a great work together. Smith and Jones. Uh, Abner Smith had a, had a great influence upon him. Abner was from Vermont. And, uh, he encouraged Smith in his dedication to the Bible and the Bible only. And so, is it easier to work when you have a little encouragement? <laughs> Well, we learned that in the Bible. It's a lot easier if you got a partner, doesn't it? I don't think it was by accident that the Lord sent them out two by twos in the limited commission. Right? But you don't want to be blind, leading the blind, right? Why? You both fall in the ditch. So you need someone that wants to encourage you, go back to the Bible. And so uh, in June of 1805, uh, they met. And now here's something that's important. It's hard to get out of this denominational mindset. They're trying, they're striving, but they're kind of bringing a little baggage along with them. So in 1805, they meet in what they called a Christian 
conference to draw up articles. And you're thinking, wait a minute. You've been preaching against this for years now. The catechisms, the articles of faith. And so, but, when they meant to do that, as they discussed it, guess what they determined? They said, this is useless. And they abandoned these articles for the Bible and the Bible alone. So in 1808, in Portsmouth, I think I said Connecticut, it's New Hampshire, uh, Smith began to publish a Christian paper called the Herald Gospel, uh, the Herald of Gospel Liberty. He began with 274 subscribers. By 1814, he had 1,500, which was huge in that day. Now, we're not going to spend all our time studying Smith, and we're out of time for this class. Ultimately, though, Smith still struggled with this idea of fighting against the elect doctrine and universalism. He was still torn. Sadly enough, ultimately, he went into universalism where he would remain. And in October of 1817, he declared in his paper, which was the last issue of the Herald of Gospel Liberty, that he had gone into universalism to stay. And so he never quite made it out of denominationalism. Uh, uh, but the publication that he put out, though it missed it in a lot of areas, like a lot of these men that we've studied, they still, through their actions and their the materials they produced, helped to point people back to the Bible. And I think, brethren, for that we owe him a debt of gratitude. Eli Smith, as far as I know, never became a New Testament Christian, but he was working his way toward that out of darkness, helping to point other people to the light. And again, for that, I think we owe him a a debt of gratitude. Any comments? All righty, we'll pick up here next time. We're going to talk a little bit about Abner Jones, just a few moments, and then we're going to move into the Barton Stone movement. And then we'll really kick off the idea of the restoration. Thank you so much.